Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Now, this is a series I've been sitting on for some time and I'm delighted to launch it today. I've spent a great deal of my own time and professional career in China, working with some of the most wonderful people, uncovering some of the most wonderful maritime stories. So it's time for a few episodes on the maritime history of China. Today, we begin everything with Zheng He. If you're English, you might read his name as Zheng He, Z-E-N-G-H-E, but in Chinese, it's pronounced Zheng He. And what a fascinating man he was. A Ming dynasty court eunuch, a diplomat, an explorer, a mariner, a Muslim. Zheng He lived from the 1370s to around 1433, and he did something really quite remarkable. Between 1405 and 1433, he commanded seven expeditionary voyages, which came to be known as treasure voyages. And he explored the East China Sea, the South China Sea, went up through the Straits of Malacca to the Bay of Bengal, around India and Sri Lanka to the Arabian Sea, the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, and on to the east coast of Africa. And he did this with enormous ships in enormous fleets. A lot of this is still conjecture, but if you believe the sources, some of the ships were almost twice as long as any wooden ship ever recorded. On the first voyage, it's believed that there were no fewer than 265 ships in total, 62 of them being of the largest type, the treasure ships. Now, historians believe these largest vessels had five or six masts and were up to 300 feet long. But that is the most conservative of estimates. There's very little physical evidence to prove any of this, with the exception of one rudder, which is 36 feet long, a monstrous piece of timber that does suggest a ship of at least 300 feet in length. Zheng He's seven voyages provide a fascinating foundation for historical debate and narrative. Here is an empire using sea power to reach out beyond its borders, a golden time of exploration, which does not last. The scale of the fleets, the distance of the voyages and the activities of the Chinese when they're abroad are all very much unsettled in the minds of modern historians. 
To find out more, I spoke with the absolute best in the business, someone who is very careful about what to believe in the magnificent Zheng He story. Professor Tim Brook is a historian of China at the University of British Columbia. He's everything you want from a history professor, deeply knowledgeable, very entertaining and, of course, very suspicious. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here's Tim. Tim, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. It's a great pleasure, Sam. Thank you for the invitation. The big question, I think, with China and their wonderful explorations in the in the fifteenth century is the kind of the mystery of when they started thinking about taking to the sea. Do we have a sense of when that happened? Um, I have a very clear sense of that as a historian of this period. Chinese have been getting into ships and sailing down the coastline of Southeast Asia for centuries before before the the big uh, the big voyages uh, they were doing it largely on for commercial purposes so they would be smaller ships they would um, perhaps have a couple of dozen crew on them just just small coastal trading but when it changes is when the Mongols, conquered China and during the period known as the Yuan Dynasty. Um, and this has to do with the the, the diplomatics of, of the East Asian world. When Kublai Khan conquers China, he brings to China the vision of imperial power that was forged by his, um, his ancestor, Genghis Khan. And when Kublai becomes the great Khan of all the Mongols, he needs to send out missions to the rest of the world to inform them that he is the greatest ruler in the world. He now rules and that they should acknowledge him as the ruler that heaven has has appointed to rule the world. And so it's it's under Kublai Khan that China start, first starts these large missions into the Indian Ocean. We don't hear about these. These have been completely forgotten because of the 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 um, the fascination that people started to have thirty years ago with the Zhenghe voyages into the Indian Ocean. But they were already happening, and he was sending envoys to Ceylon to try and secure the the there's a there's a famous Buddha Buddha statue there that he was trying to secure he was trying to secure jewels because the ruler who holds jewels uh, jewels are like these this crystallization of heaven's power and the more great jewels you have the more you are able to attest to the fact that you are heaven's choice as the ruler of the world and in fact um this is often forgotten but Marco Polo gets back home to the Mediterranean on one of these voyages. And that's a, that that particular voyage was to send a princess from China to Persia, who was supposed to marry the Ilkhan. But uh, the voyage takes over two years to, to travel the route around Southeast Asia and across India, because it's involved in all of these diplomatic negotiations, with coast, mostly with coastal powers, to make sure that they acknowledge that the ruler of the Yuan Great State, which happens to be China at this period, is the heavens appointed ruler of the world. So, so you've got you've got China's experience on the ocean is at two levels. One, there's this sort of commercial level of smaller vessels that are trading around Southeast Asia and into the Indian Ocean. And then you have the states stepping in and sending these larger diplomatic embassies 
using, of course, the same technology that the commercial sailors had developed, using the same routes. Um, they they are they are simply the 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 diplomatic voyages are simply tracing the routes that the uh, commercial voyages had been working out for several centuries. It's interesting that the Mongols, sorry to to interrupt there, that the Mongols are the ones that take to the sea because the Mongols are horsemen. They they have no knowledge, they have no experience of it. So it, it I suppose it takes them a while. Yes, and, and Genghis Khan had no particular notion of ever going to sea. But once Kublai Khan gets to the coast, he realizes, well, the world continues. And I, as heaven's choice of ruler of the world, need to make sure that the world is is uh, subject to my to my hegemony so famously he sends several fleets to japan and they are destroyed every time by a combination of uh, bad luck with the weather and japanese resistance so and eventually kublai has to sort of um i think they just found an anchor from one of those fleets have they not yes yeah that's right yes mm. yes they have but there's, there's been some great uh, archaeology between the Korean Peninsula and Japan mm-hmm. to recover some of the uh, some of the ships. And w- one of the interesting findings is that the Mongols threw together these fleets so quickly that they were sailing in kind of hulks that were ready to sink anyway. And mm-hmm. it, it, it was a mess. They did not know how to organize a major uh, ocean-going expedition. So after a couple of decades, Kublai just sort of <clears throat> Uh, looks the other way and says, well, we d- we don't need to go to Japan. But he starts sending voice- voyages down into Southeast Asia, to Java. He sends voyages into the Indian Ocean, not on the scale of the Zheng He voyages of the 15th century, but he's sending these ships as, as diplomatic uh, vessels. Mm. You don't want to turn up on a diplomatic mission in a sinking ship, do you? Because that does no. <laughs> shoot yourself in the no. foot. <laughs> no. And and in fact, we, the history of Chinese shipbuilding is not as well developed as it could be. And um, the more wrecks we can find, the better we can understand that. But by the 15th century, they are building sizable, um, solid vessels that can that can travel all the way to the Indian Ocean. Yeah, sort of big ocean-going junks. And I suppose it's important to point out that the history of um, Chinese seafaring tradition, they have a wonderful variety of um, of, of ships which are designed for co- different types of coastal voyages. And in and around the estuaries, there's a difference between the north and the south. But the development of this sort of multi-masted ocean-going hulk is a, is a kind of game-changer, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, I'm not the person to to answer questions about boat technology. <laughs> no, <however. it's> fine. <laughs> I, I simply um, I, I simply admire it from a distance. Um, what they what they what they can't do, or what they what they don't develop that early on are ships that are maneuverable and and quick. So they have these large vessels that they can put on the water. But they're they're not very maneuverable, and they're not particularly good uh, in in a case of a of, of a naval engagement. So we've established that there's a kind of a prehistory to these diplomatic voyages during the Yuan Dynasty. Then it all changes with Zheng He. Um, how does it change? When does it change? Well, I'm not sure how much we can say it changes with Zheng He. Hmm. It changes after Zheng He is finished. We should remember that Zheng He was not a seaman. He was not. A, he's often called an admiral. Um, the reason Zheng He is put in charge of these voyages is that he is a slave of the emperor's household. Mm. 
And the emperor does not want to put these voyages in the hands of the Chinese bureaucracy. He wants this to be under the control of the imperial household. So he chooses one of his castrated slaves. Um, Zheng He is the man he chooses. And he chooses Zheng He because he's developed a relationship of trust with him. Also, Zheng He has proved himself to be a superb organizer. He's largely responsible for building the Forbidden City in Beijing hmm. at the beginning of the 15th century. And he does such a good job. Zheng He thinks uh, he's the guy I'm sending to run to run these missions. As far as we know, Zheng He doesn't know anything about maritime issues. He's never been on a boat in his life until he, he steps aboard the first the first voyage that goes to the Indian Ocean. So he's not, he, if he's if you like, he's not um he's not a seafarer. He is a he's an organization man who who is going to run, and it's a large organization because these these uh, these fleets into the Indian Ocean. They're up to four dozen major vessels, and then uh, that number, if not more, of smaller sort of accompanying pinnaces and so forth that that uh, that accompanied the ship, up to thirty thousand men on these expeditions. They were enormous. They were enormous operations, and Zheng He was the guy who could run an operation on this scale, and that's why he he was also very imposing. He was over six feet tall and uh, heavy set. And um, Emperor Yonglu wanted a representative to go to rulers around Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean who was going to be an impressive sight. And Zheng filled, fit, the, fit that requirement very nicely. Yeah. It's interesting that he was uh, such a good administrator because it's made me think of um, several maritime operations which were given to seamen who had no administrative experience and they were all useless and they failed. I'm thinking of the Spanish Armada primarily, but um, there, sure. there are other examples. And the, the early history of the East India Company vessels, often the company appointed a seafarer to do the mechanics of the sailing, but then they appointed a merchant who understood commerce and logistics and uh, one would be superior to the other, but the, the two would have to work together to make to make these voyages work. Mm. Um, we know so little about the personnel on the Zheng He voyages. We have a few memoirs that that some people on those voyages wrote, um, but we we can't, we really can't piece them together in the detail that we can the, the early European voyages, which is unfortunate. It would be interesting to know more. Um, what's attracted my attention as a historian, though, is what this did to the geopolitical situation in East Asia. And it did change things because uh, before Zheng He arrived, there were a few other, actually a few other envoys were sent out before Zheng He ever went, but they'd be sent out on, they'd have two or three ships. It would be a smaller venture, just getting in touch with coastal polities around uh, on, on the east side of the Indian Ocean to say, Zheng, uh, Emperor Yonglu is now the emperor, he should be acknowledged. And so kind of forth. paving the way. It's an interesting point, because if someone with 30,000 people turns up off your shoreline, that could be pretty frightening. But I suppose they needed well, to have at least some kind of heads up that this guy was coming. Yes. And, and it was pretty frightening because and, and that was the intention, because although Emperor Yonglu was Chinese and he was ruling a Chinese dynasty, <laughs> the way he understood rulership was very much in the Mongol style, in the style of Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan, and he wanted to be recognized that way. So these were these these voyages were intended to intended to intimidate, uh, intimidate to the point that there wasn't going to be any resistance 
to whatever it was that was suggested. Now, they, they didn't go in and say, um, you have to do this or that. If the local rule and the local rulers were pretty savvy, because by this point, there were already Muslim Rajas who had, who had situated themselves in many of the ports of the Indian Ocean. Uh, and it, locally, it was understood if there is a major embassy from China arriving in 48 ships, um, you're going to go along with them. You're not going to try and resist them. And the famous case of resistance is the is uh, is when the uh, the king of Ceylon decides, no, I am not going to submit myself to the emperor of China. And this leads to a to a long struggle, um, a violent struggle. Uh, the king is is and his family are taken hostage. They're taken back to China. He's officially deposed by Emperor Yongle who then uh, puts one of his junior kinsmen into power, but that then gets, that guy gets switched once he gets to Salon. I mean, it's a, it's a, a complicated geopolitical story. And what's, if I can put it this way, what's bothered me about the stories of Zhenghe is that they're all about glorifying maritime expeditions. Well, maritime expeditions are fine, but you have to think about, well, what are they for? They are not necessarily to increase the wealth and understanding between the party sending the expedition and the party receiving the expedition. They can be uh, uh, they can be violent, they can be intimidative, and they can intervene in local politics in ways that are really not conducive to the stability of the regions into which they sail. By the uh, by the seventh, Zheng He dies. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. On the seventh voyage, and they were, by this point, we're into the 1440s, and then they just, the, the court just shuts this down. And the court shuts it down because it's so expensive. These voyages are not they're not voyages of trade. They do engage in trade along the way, 
but they're they're diplomatic voyages so there's a lot of gift giving they give gifts to the local rulers the local rulers give gifts to them they sometimes convert that into supplies for the ships and so forth but they are not designed to make money or even really to be self-supporting and the cost of running these vast expeditions is simply enormous um arguably building those the seven fleets that go into the indian ocean is the factor that strips south china of all of its trees um famously it was it was treed at the end of the 14th century and by the middle of the 15th century the trees have just been stripped because they need the wood wow. built to build the ships yeah. and um and if you take the perspective of a, of an indian ocean a, a, a port state in the indian ocean uh this is this is a, a high level of intimidation and you have to work with it you have no choice but um th this idea of glorifying what china is doing is really cheering for empires over smaller states and um it's not something i like to do so mm. oh, a fascinating way of looking at it um the, the talking about the the sheer expense of it and also the number of people the 30,000 mm -hmm. you mentioned um that obviously must say a great deal about the stability, the internal stability of China when this is going on. So is it fair to see China as a very stable stable state while these uh, explorations are happening? Well, it's interesting that you put the question that way. It's a good question. But in fact, when Emperor Yongle came to the throne, there was profound instability because he seizes the throne. He murders his nephew and because he wants to seize power. Um, he's the son of the, the dynastic founder founds the Ming dynasty in 1368. When he dies, he appoints a grandson to succeed him. And then one of the uncles, Yong Lu, gets in there and said, no way, uh, raises an army, uh, marches down to the palace, burns the palace to the ground, and the nephew is never seen again, and he becomes the new emperor. And he reigns with a with an iron fist. So any any officials who expressed loyalty to the assassinated, the emperor that he had assassinated, um, are immediately executed. So it's politically, it's an extremely unstable time. And part of the logic of sending these fleets out to the world is to get the world to confirm that Yong Le is in fact heaven's choice as the emperor of China. Uh, if you can't convince your own people that you deserve to be the ruler, that well, then, if you get a a, a line of um, of ambassadors from all over the world saying um, we come here to honor Emperor Yongle, it helps him with with his attempt to create a, a legitimate for his resistance. It's an extremely unstable period. Now, in other ways, it's it's a fairly a fairly good period for China. Um, the first half of the 15th century is one of the, in, ter in climate terms, it's one of the most, uh, it's one of the gentlest periods of the Ming dynasty. Temperatures are normal, rainfall is higher than usual, so that the crops are abundant. Um, the economy is reasonably healthy through the years of Emperor Yongle's reign, which allows him to do this. Um, and then he has a superb imperial household organization that makes happen what he wants to happen. So he, he's got a, a firm grip on the country, a firm grip on the administration. And if he wants to send a fleet of 48 ships to the Indian Ocean, there is no one to um, 
to to say any different. And and uh, and politically, uh, politically, it's successful. Although once he's once Emperor Yongle has died, uh, the enthusiasm for this sort of thing just drains away because it's too expensive. It's too much. It's the use of too much resources, and there is this sort of sense of political destabilization under the surface that that I think alarms the Confucian bureaucrats. So, uh, so they they and 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 frankly, the if China in the middle of the fifteenth century needs to worry about anything, it's not the Indian Ocean; it's the Mongols. Um, the Mongols are a consistent threat to China through this period. And if China is going to focus its resources and its military capacity, it has to be up to the north and the west, where the Mongol threat lurks, not out into the into the maritime zone. Mm. The number of different expeditions I find fascinating as well. The fact there were so many of them. Are they going to the same places? Or yes, they they are, and to some extent they are. And and in in a sense, it's a it's a. Uh, it's a, a courier service because if you go to the port, uh, well, Malacca, I don't know. <laughs> Malacca. If you go to Malacca, and you invite the the king of Malacca to come to the capital in China, you have to take him home. So uh, the they go in a, in a fairly regular rhythm of every three or four years in order to take heads of state and their ambassadors back, and then pick up a new round of heads of state and ambassadors who will come to uh, to China and and acknowledge Emperor Yongle. So so he's setting up this sort of taxi service almost for um, for political envoys to go back and forth between China and the Indian Ocean world. It's interesting they're not diplomats. They're actually the heads of state. Um, in some cases, the heads of state. In most cases, they're ambassadors. They're okay. not the heads of state. But sometimes... Um, if you're a head of state, uh, in a Malacca is a good example of of how the decision gets made about whether a head of state goes to uh, goes to China or not. Um, the king of Malacca was was re had recently established himself there. He was from another a royal family in another state, and he'd been defeated and kicked out. Ended up in Malacca, established a new state there. He needed uh, the backing of China to convince his competitors that he was a major contender and they shouldn't mess with him. So, in fact, he goes to China, meets the emperor, um, is 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 blessed by the emperor, is sent back, and then he uses his connection to China in order to withstand threats that are coming at him from other areas. The problem, though, is that if you're a king of a of a smaller state and you leave, you could be away for two or three years. And during that period of time, you could be deposed. So <laughs> not, it's not wise to uh, to go and see the emperor of China unless you really need his political backing. Yeah. So it's it's what's happening here is that there's this complex political background going on to these voyages. The voyages are not just, this is not sort of China's version of Christopher Columbus or anything like that. It's a completely different situation. And one of the reasons that I think that everyone got so excited about the Junko voyages 30 years ago was that Columbus was largely seen as the, the, the Europe's ticket to 
imperial greatness, and it was giving China the same sort of thing. Uh, whereas I'm, I, it, it, the fact that they were in ships—that's the common, that's that's the what they had in common. But the challenges European navigators faced, um, sailing out up and down the the Atlantic Ocean, uh, going the distances and covering the latitudes they covered, that required technological breakthroughs and. Um, navigational breakthroughs that that China never made, and that by making them, that made Europe a more powerful sea power than China was. Oh, that's fascinating. And um, when working to try and unpick all of this, are there are there decent non-Chinese sources which explain what's going on? Or are we all sort of having to unpick it from the Chinese perspective? We pretty much have to use the Chinese sources. Um, I've uh, in in the book that I published a couple of years ago, Great State. I have a chapter devoted to Zheng He's uh, voyage to Sri Lanka, and there I was able to find local popular stories that that recounted. Zheng He's time on Sri Lanka in a way that looks completely different from what it says in the official court diary. Because when Zheng He get, got home, he had to report to the to the emperor exactly what he had done. Um, but it, it turns out that what Zheng He reported and what ended up in the Chinese sources was not necessarily what actually happened on the ground. We don't have a lot of those sources. There's not... Um, South Asia is not a great source of written sources prior to about the 16th century. We have some folk tales mostly. It's when uh, it's when the Portuguese come into the Indian Ocean, and that's not until the 16th century, that we begin to get better European documentation about what went on. And Europeans hear about the Zheng He voyages. But by and large, we're, we're, we're restricted by the, the, the Chinese sources, which, which are useful and informative, but ha you have to read them against the grain because they're very much tied up with the political legitimacy of Emperor Yongle. So um, it, 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 it makes it difficult to really get to the bottom of what the, what the reality, what the experience of those voyages was like. Yeah. Does archaeology help? Archaeology can help. There haven't been uh, there haven't been many. I'm, and and I, I should I, I'm, I I should be able to give you a better answer to this. Oh, no, I they found they found a rudder from a treasure ship, haven't they? In yeah, um, Nanjing, they, they, found, they found a few bits and pieces, but they haven't found one of the ships. No. And largely, uh, these ships didn't go down. And so when the when a ship got back, it would be partly dismantled, rebuilt for the next voyage. So we don't have arche the archaeological finds that we have for, for well, for example, any of the um, uh, for the Spanish galleons that are going across the Pacific. We've 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 got a couple of those, and those help tremendously in understanding what the what the what the ship was like, what the ship carried, and all that sort of thing. And we don't have that for the jungle voyages. Mm. What do you think about the way um, China today looks back on, on this period in the past and, and perhaps uses it? I'm thinking about the way they are um, focusing so much on the, the Belt and the Road Initiative and everything yes. and, and using their history. Um, what, what does that tell us? 
Well, um, it tells us that that the current government in China needs a narrative to to tell Chinese, but also to tell the world about China's place in the world. And they they want to get away from the old image of China sort of enclosed behind the Great Wall, uh, a continental world that is not a maritime world. They want to change that story. And the Zhenghe expeditions are they're, they're they're full of great stories and great characters, and and that becomes a kind of um, it's a narrative that the government can use to say, well, we've had relations with Sri Lanka since since well, since before the 15th century, and places so like Cambodia China, as well. That matters, doesn't yes, it? and that too. So China is now back out in the world where it had once been. Um, these uh i think there's a there's a rather high measure of cynicism in all of this because as i've suggested earlier in my remarks their arrival in sri lanka in the 15th century was was not welcomed it was resisted it was violent and uh that's all of course just swept under the rug and we instead have this happy story about how the chinese and the sri lankans have been have had cordial relations for five centuries, um, which really isn't the case at all. But so so these are these are political stories that are that are that are worked up to try and make China uh, appear to be doing what it what it should be doing. Uh, that is, it's not China trying to be a Western power. It's China re reimagining itself as what it what it had previous previously been so it's it's largely political tale telling rather than than anything there's nothing of substance there really uh, it's all been it's all been manufactured in the last 15 20 years as a way to try and make china visible to the world and comprehensible to the world and um in a sense a natural part of the of the of the maritime world that we we inhabit yeah. Well, fascinating. Tim, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Well, Sam, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for um, thank you for your interest in, in China's history in this regard. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, there's so much more coming your way. And next up is an episode on what the shipwrecks of Southeast Asia can tell us about this fascinating period of Chinese international trade and expansion in the Middle Ages. In the meantime, please do check out our YouTube channel, which is great fun and full of videos that will change the way that you think about the maritime past. I promise you. And do please leave us a rating and review however you are listening to our podcast, but especially if you're listening on iTunes or listening on an iPhone. This podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research, so please do check out what both of those wonderful institutions are up to. In particular, please Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. It's the Lloyd's Register Foundation's latest project, filming the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment. I've just returned from the International Maritime Organization's headquarters in London filming their ship models, and the results are going to be absolutely spectacular, but you can see everything that's all already been published. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk and please sign up and join. It's a brilliant way of supporting maritime history. It's a brilliant way of meeting and it's just brilliant full stop.